As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Mr. Vindman, you were treated to a July 10th meeting in the White House where you heard Ambassador Sondland raise investigations, conditioning a White House meeting on that, investigations that you thought were unduly political. I believe that's how you described them. And you went to the NSC Council and you reported it, right? Correct. And then later, you too were on the White House call, am I right? You heard it with your own ears. Correct. Not secondhand, not from somebody else, not hearsay, right? Correct. You heard the President's voice on the call. I didn't. And you heard him raise that subject again that Ambassador Sondland had raised before about investigating the Bidens, right? I did. And I want to ask you, when you heard him say that, what was the first thought that went through your mind? Frankly, I couldn't believe uh, what I was hearing. Um, it was probably an element of shock that uh, maybe in certain regards, my worst fear of how our Ukraine policy could play out uh, was playing out and how this was likely to have uh, significant implications for U.S. national security. And you went immediately and you reported it, didn't you? I did. Why? Because that was my duty. Alexander Vindman was a key witness in Trump's impeachment trial. Everyone saw him up there, the lieutenant colonel who testified for more than 10 hours. I watched a lot of it, and the guy was impressive. He didn't flinch even when the Republican congressman bullied him. Trump did get impeached by the House, but the Senate saved him. Ultimately, the president kept his job. Vindman didn't. So is that what happens when you stand up to power? What's the lesson here? Vindman had only been at his post at the National Security Council for a year when he heard the call. That call was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. My conversation was perfect. On that, quote, perfect call, Trump asked for a personal favor from the president of Ukraine and seemed to imply that military aid would depend on it. Cue the Godfather theme. Vindman could have done nothing. That's what most people in Trump's oily orbit seem to do. But he did something. Just one thing. He reported it. Who does that? And why? I needed to find out. All right, get comfy. This is a long interview. <laughs> long is relative, because, uh, you know, 10 and a half hours, uh, you know, that was my first interview with the House, so... Uh... Oh, right, fair point. All right, what do I call you now? Colonel Vinman, retired Lieutenant Colonel Vinman? What is the correct designation of an ex-military officer? Sure, I think uh, formally it's um, Lieutenant Colonel retired, but I don't tend to be very formal, so please go ahead and call me Alex. Um, so I'll call you Alex. Yes, please. Um, 
So let's go back a little bit about talking about how power works and the changes in the Trump White House. So you joined the White House during the Trump administration in July 2018. Actually, my first day on the job was during that press conference in Helsinki, and I had to kind of deal with the fallout from that, Uh press inquiries and so forth. Um, This is where President Trump would explain for people, seemed to be agreeing with Vladimir Putin and not his own intelligence officers. Correct. Correct. He took um, Vladimir Putin's word for the fact that you know, Russia wasn't interfering in elections over the consensus view of the entire intelligence community that Russia had, in fact, substantially interfered in elections. Why did you join this administration? So maybe it's a little bit of uh, naivete, thinking that I could make some sort of difference on things that matter for U.S. national security. How often did you interact with President Trump or was it through these these channels? I'm communicating, you know, through one level, the National Security Advisor with the president. You know, th- there was one time where I had the opportunity to participate in the meeting uh, directly with the president. This was following the inauguration of President Zelensky. And I frankly declined it on the advice of John Bolton and uh, Fiona Hill because I would set the president's uh, understanding on who was helping him with Ukraine policy askew. There was this whole idea of some other actors within the NSC, political actors that were, you know, somehow involved in Ukraine policy. So this sounds like what you're saying in a polite way is that there are other people sort of putting their fingers on the weight. Sure. So talk a little bit about how decisions get made at the Trump White House. What's the process and is it different than before? Definitely. So the way these things typically unfold is um, you, you could occasionally have direction from the president on a particular foreign policy approach. Uh, You know, for instance, maybe during the um, Reagan administration, you know, a a harder line on the Soviet Union or, you know, in the ultimate stages of the INF agreements, you know, there was some direction that came from the top. But oftentimes you actually have um, departments and agencies that have a policy perspective well-nested within the president's kind of worldview. Concrete example with Ukraine, for instance, that one was a combination of, you know, initiative from the National Security Council, as well as departments and agencies sharing a common view of the fact that we had to work uh, more closely with Ukraine. To help Ukraine. Yes. Against Russia. And we had a unique opportunity, frankly, with President Zelensky. He'd come in on a, a very strong reform, anti-corruption platform, and a view that he needs to integrate more closely with the Euro- European Union. So we collaborated, we developed policy through the interagency process. And it goes up and down the chain. You shape it for the president to make a decision. So what was different in the Trump administration? What was different? Give me an example. Sure, sure. What was different in the Trump administration is you have decisions that are purely driven by self-interest, purely driven by uh, motivation to advance re-election efforts and so forth. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up becoming embroiled in was a effort to coerce the Ukrainians into providing dirt on Vice President Joe Biden, who is at that point uh, likely to be the the chief challenger of the the president of the United States. And this was exactly 180 degrees out from what the policy recommendations were from from below. So Mm -hmm. if we were recommending closer cooperation with the Ukrainians, uh, aiding them in their anti-corruption efforts, Um, this was an enterprise to actually uh, entrench them further in in corruption, in a corruption scheme, Mm -hmm. because the president wanted some dirt on an opponent. So had you seen this process before? Had you had had moments where you were seeing this happening? Yes. So give me an example. So, for instance, when um, Mr. Khashoggi was was assassinated by um, 
The Saudis. This is Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered by the Saudi government yes. and dismembered. That's right. We, we had very good information suggesting that the decisions uh, to assassinate uh, Mr. Khashoggi were uh, given by the, the senior most leadership in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. But this would potentially undermine very, very large arms sales contracts that the Trump administration and uh, Jared Kushner had basically coordinated. And in, in order to not upset this, you know, something that could, uh, again, contribute to the president's uh, views as a successful foreign policy dealmaker, uh, we coldly suppressed this highly credible intelligence. So what you're just saying is that political considerations, you had started to see political considerations everywhere around you. I did. There's a, a interesting phenomenon amongst uh, Trump White House of officials. The problem is that you have a series of professionals, foreign policy professionals that come from departments and agencies, and then you have what amount to politicians. Well, there is a lack of respect for experts, correct? Uh, you, this could not come as a surprise to you. Uh, yes, but when I when I showed up, um, it still seemed like we were, you know, in a, in, in a bounded world where you were still closer to the old process. So let's get to the call, which you call the perfect phone call. You're on this call. Tell me a little bit about what you could have done when you heard it. So you were ready to possibly hear political machinations. What I had kind of almost refused to accept was that the president was party, directly a party to this. You know, there are sycophants in, you know, in in any organization, um, many more so in in this particular White House that are catering to the president's interests, aggrandizing themselves, ingratiating themselves, you know, for personal benefit. The kind of Rudy Giuliani's of the world and that were potentially carrying the president's water indirectly, you know, acting on some sort of general intent. Right. I want to I want to win the reelection and come up with some way for me to do that. I've seen this unfold from March through this July 10th meeting where uh, Ambassador Bolton is meeting with the Ukrainian National Security Advisor and Sondland pitches this idea. But none of this necessarily directly implicated President Trump. So this is all happening in Ukraine, the idea of trying to find dirt on Hunter Biden. That's really what's going on here. Well, it's not Hunter Biden so much. It's Hunter Biden as kind of almost a cutout. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you find dirt on Hunter Biden, then you can implicate the vice president in covering so up. So you had already run into Rudy Giuliani and others trying to influence this. So you were poised to see this, but you didn't think the president had anything to do with it, really? Uh, I mean, maybe because I'm military and the president's the commander in chief. There's always a high regard um, for the office of the president, um, you know, rigid military, you know, hierarchies or something like that. And he's the commander in chief. I frankly maybe refuse to to believe that the president was somehow directly involved. I thought maybe, again, it was folks catering to the president. But this was clearly the president himself saying it and frankly, uh, you know, being at the center, the kind of the driving force behind it. So when you heard this, what went off in your head? Right. It's a congratulatory phone call. This is the second congratulatory phone call that President Trump was having with President Zelensky. The first one went off really well. The the president basically, he had a series of talking points to congratulate President Zelensky on his landslide victory. Uh, The tone of this call was, again, you know, the the exact opposite. The president seemed like, I mean, from his voice, he was a, a reluctant participant. He would call it a low energy phone call. And from the beginning, he's, you know, starts commenting on how the U.S. has done so much for Ukraine and Ukraine is not reciprocating. And um, it looked like it was going to be a bad call from the get go. Mm -hmm. But not until, you know, those kind of fateful words uh, after President Zelensky, you know, mentions that he was going to buy javelin missiles. 
and, and the president then poses, uh, you know, we need you to do us a favor, though. Uh, tit for tat. Tit for tat. And, you know, the, the conversation devolved. The president named the uh, Bidens directly as the targets of um, this investigation. And to, to me, you know, there was it was absolutely wrong and potentially criminal. Were you surprised or? I, I looked up and, uh, you know, to kind of see if anybody else took note. I uh, I did I did see similar, at least from the kind of the, the folks that were in the know, understanding what is going on with Ukraine. But nobody did anything. I wasn't aware of that at the time, frankly. I, I knew that it was my responsibility as the Ukraine director. Did anybody say anything in this room? We're, we were, I mean, I didn't say anything either. I, I just continued to take notes in my, you know, government green notebook uh, with as much fidelity as I could. Uh, everybody else was doing the same thing. Frankly, not a word was uttered until after the call, at which point, you know, we had a press release that we had drafted ahead of time and we, you know, we pulled it out and proceeded to quickly cross off all the things that we had put in there about fighting corruption, reforms, and just cross it all off. We didn't discuss this. We didn't discuss this. And I knew that my duty was to basically take my concerns to the legal office. So after after the call, there were there were actually three things you could have done. Um, you could have done nothing, which many people have done, done nothing. Uh, you did tell the NSC's lawyer, or you could have gone to the press. Why why not go further? Right. So um, I uh, have heard criticism against me that I'm somehow a leaker. That's that's clearly not the case. No, you're not a leaker. You could have been a leaker. The, There's lots yeah. of leakers here in this administration. There was, to me, there was no real choice about which, which course of action. I, I certainly was not going to not say anything. I wasn't going to uh, uh, abrogate my responsibilities, my duties to kind of raise this issue on a potentially criminal enterprise that frankly, undermines the very foundations of our uh, democracy. So I, and, and with that in mind, I, I knew you know what the right channel was. It was the IG equivalent channel uh, which would, would be the NSC legal shop. And my thought was that these would still be kind of, even though they're they're uh, political kind of uh, appointees, that these would be the right people. You know, the president has a lot of lawyers. And I thought that these lawyers would potentially be able to say, hey, Mr. President, this is, you know, illegal and we, we need to put the kibosh on this. Uh, the following day, I had prepared for a deputies committee meeting in which we frankly substantiated what we had been working on, mm-hmm. more cooperation with Ukraine, increased security assistance. So you were trying to get it back on track. Yes. And I was working within the system to do that. At the time, you thought the process worked. And now you went to the NSC lawyer. Did you talk to other people? Did you express worries to other people? Uh, I Just to, to my twin brother, who's a chief ethics official, and this was an ethical issue. So I wanted to pull him in. And I, it's very fortunate that he was there. And, you know, I had another. And it couldn't. And I thought this would be also another way to avoid it getting swept under the rug, because now you know, it's more people know, including the chief ethics official, and um, action would have to be taken. So now let's talk. We know that former National Security Advisor John Bolton shows at the time to do nothing at the time of the call or the impeachment proceedings. Now he wrote a book about it. How does that make you feel? Because you know, here was your boss at the NSA not doing it. There's a lot of people not doing something. I think, unfortunately, um, maybe it's politics is, is a dirty game. And at that senior level, we've lost the kind of political leadership that is driven by values-based decision-making, integrity, ethics, and so forth. And, um, you know, especially under this administration, there's been a shift to other driving forces like self-preservation in the case of Department of Defense or the Army, or, you know, personal gain. That's not the way I've lived my life. You have a good relationship with uh, Ambassador Bolton now? I, I didn't have a bad relationship with him. I certainly sensed that after I made my complaint, 
there was some retaliation. I didn't go on a trip uh, with him to countries in my portfolio. I attributed that to the fact that, you know, I'd kind of proved myself to be an unreliable political actor. It's much more important, frankly, that my peers in the military respect the decisions I make um, rather than, you know, political actors. Okay. How did you hear about the whistleblower complaint? Uh, did you feel betrayed? Because you, you seem to be one of the sources. So, um, do I feel betrayed by it? No. I think the whistleblower was probably acting on his best uh, view of how to address the situation. That's the way I kind of do the analysis that the whistleblower felt like he had no other choice but to take this to the channels, to the IG and the intelligence community. And then ultimately, when that didn't look like it was going to result in a reversal of behavior, ultimately to the House committees. So, I no, I have no issues um, about it. I mean, it's kind of funny to say because in hindsight that, you know, ultimately cost me my military career. But there were bigger stakes here. And others on that call, who were they and why didn't they act? Did you ever go to them and say, just did, did that sound funny to you? That's also something I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit because uh, it turns out that other people did go, you know, including, you know, political actors like uh, my boss, Tim Morrison, who claims that he only went because uh, attorneys weren't in the room felt it concerning enough where he had to go circle back around eventually and tell them under this guise of like, you know, just letting him know instead of being deeply concerned. I remember having a conversation with him separately about whether the president's comments were an actual change in policy and him being extremely dismissive, saying, no, we're not going to take any action on this. It's it's not policy. It's almost like a presidential tweet that really upsets the apple cart and you have to you know deal with. But it doesn't mean a change in policy. So you told your brother, you told counsel. Did you tell anyone else? So I, I did tell two other people, and these were the two most essential people to have a conversation with inside the broader government. Uh, one uh, was, was George Kent, my counterpart, um, Deputy Assistant Se- Secretary at State that covered Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I gave him what I thought he needed to know without going into all the gory details. He's well positioned because he co- corresponds with a charge in Kiev on a regular basis, you know, that he could then be alerted to how the Ukrainians respond, take this kind of call, this demand, because, you know, this is not an unusual uh, natural tension between all the work that tends to go into policy and then uh, an erratic decision. I mean, this has been templated in Syria with the with, with withdrawal troops. Afghanistan also, these are these are decisions that literally happen almost on a whim. Mm-hmm. Um, with you know, President Trump. Uh, with the president, transactionally, because he thinks at that moment that might be something that benefits him in... You so know, snap decisions are not yeah. what Alexander Vindman does. The, the snap, or, or uh, the government should right. do. Snap decisions, I don't know if that quite captures it. These are not. These are instinctually driven decisions... The instinct that drives them is ego, self-aggrandizement, personal gain. And that's the difference here. Were you asked not to testify by the White House? The White House put out a general declaration that it doesn't want anybody from the executive branch to um, testify. In my case, you know, they would have preferred I didn't testify. Absolutely. So, But did you all, all of you as a group, ever feel like it wasn't going to make a difference no matter what you said? Absolutely. I absolutely thought about it. Congress... Exercising its oversight authorities um, as a co-equal branch of government had called me to provide, you know, uh, witness testimony on something that I had already felt was wrong. And I could either sit on the sidelines or I could do my duty and and make a material um, contribution to defense. Does that necessarily mean that the president's going to get removed? No. But there was still some accountability in the impeachment process. And in certain ways, um, I think the impeachment exposed 
a lot of the misdeeds of the president. Does it have to make a difference to you? Do you ever think, you know, by yourself late at night, wow, I became a martyr and martyr is not really a job. Mm. And here I've given up everything. Yeah. Um, I think part of my family's history in this regard is is maybe uh, is, is helpful because my, my dad had to reinvent himself a couple times, including when he brought us here at the age of 47, uh, uh, leaving the Soviet Union and having to haul furniture for six months before joining the, the Department of Environmental Protection in New York City as an engineer and making things work. You know, having mm-hmm. three young sons, uh, mother-in-law that he didn't necessarily get along with, but he he made it work. And I was, uh, I knew that there would be a lot of difficulties in the short term. I was looking for lifelines along the way, but it was pretty clear to me that, you know, this was probably going to end my, my military career, but I wasn't fearful about the fact that I would land on my feet and I'd be okay. I mean, I'd had a pretty good run to that point, um, and I, I thought I would be fine eventually. You saying you you were forced out of the military and the White House? Nobody wants a famous lieutenant colonel in their in their command. This would be a stigma that I would have to, uh, regardless of what administration. This would be a stigma I would have to live with, uh, as you know, the guy that was involved in the impeachment affair, the guy that testified against the president, the guy that you know uh, appeared in Congress. And every decision, you know, made about my career in the future would be looked from that lens. I was also in conversations with senior military officers told that I wouldn't be able to serve in my region, um, that, you know, I had flown too close to the sun, uh, you know, I guess like Icarus or something. But that wasn't sufficient. Uh, You know, the president wanted to be vindictive. Him him and his, his cronies wanted to be vindictive and retaliate and, you know, kind of demonstrate what happens to folks that are assessed to be disloyal mm-hmm. or go against the president. And this is to not allow you to be promoted? That was a part, ultimately a part of it. Um, I knew I was supposed to be promoted because I was selected for what's called Senior Service College, commonly known as War College. I found out about that the day before I was notified about the the um, fact that I was going to be appearing in the, in the closed-door testimony. So I knew that I was, uh, I was set for kind of a still a very fruitful career and uh, a lot of possibilities in front of me, uh, at least on paper. But I also knew that, you know, the president is vindictive and vengeful and that uh, I would have a major uh, counterforce from the executive branch working against me. But you believe in this process. I, be- I believe in uh, American institutions. Uh, what I, I still believe in is that you have good people in government attempting to do the right thing. What I fear is with four more years and the damage this, that this administration has done to institutions starting with the Justice Department, but then uh, progressing to the intelligence community, Department of Homeland Security, and now my own department, Department of Defense and Army, is that there has been a significant erosion in how good governance, good institutions are supposed to operate, and good people are leaving, and those guardrails you know, are falling aside, and, and we're, we're not going to have any guardrails. If over the course of this administration you had you know, the term, the grown-ups in the room have all kind of left and now you have uh, cronies and, and political operatives, a future administration will be governed by the president's inconsistency, impulsiveness, conceits. And um, then you do have what devolves into purely transactional relationships. And it's going to be purely driven by ego, personal gain, and kind of his general proclivities to um, consolidate power and better emulate the people that he most regards, which are not our allies, it's Vladimir Putin. It's um, President Xi. And that's what he aspires to be. And that's what he's going, going to try to do. You know, your whole life will now forever be linked with Trump. 
How do you feel about that? Frankly, one of the reasons I'm doing this this doctoral program at, at Johns Hopkins writing on great power competition is because I still have aspirations to serve and contribute to U.S. national security. So, yes, I could choose to be defined by this and, you know, go out on some sort of circuit and talk about, uh, you know, my my role in the impeachment. But that's while that's well, there is a big anti-Trump circuit, you know, there, <laughs> there's there's there is. And it's justified. But that's not the sum total of who I am. Do you regret do you regret doing this? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I think it goes back to what I, I said earlier about the fact that I felt like I made a material contribution to national defense. Um, I I can live with myself. I sleep well at night. I uh, could look my young daughter, who's nine years old, in the eye uh, now and when she gets older and understands you know, the role I played and not have to equivocate like many dozens of other people will have to do. They will have to explain. There will be an accounting. There'll be an accounting with their future selves where they kind of have to live with their decisions. There'll be an accounting with their kind of their, their, their loved ones, their children, that they will have to then say, why did you do this? You know, you had an opportunity to protect America and you chose to be, to be silent. You chose to kind of protect yourself or serve yourself. That is That is not who I am. We'll be right back. podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. I want to go very quickly into this. Uh, the Atlantic reported recently that President Trump uh, disparaged America's war dead as losers. What's your sense about how the military feels about the president and, and about the Atlantic reporting? Sure. So I think uh, the military, which re- is representative of, uh, frankly, a large swaths of America, has recognized that the president is not advancing U.S. national security interests. And I think that polling, again, has indicated uh, as much. It is not a surprise to anyone because we have heard the president use his own words to to call, you know, generals babies and suckers and, and dupes and so forth. 
you know, what's interesting about the Atlantic reporting is not what it uncovered. It's that it's a, still a surprise to people that the president has no understanding of public service or service to anybody but self. Well, you called an interview with the president a useful idiot of Vladimir Putin. What did you mean by that? Because he doesn't seem like an idiot. He seems, I mean, I know that's a term. Of, yeah, it's a tradecraft you know. term. Uh, and it's a term of art. And what it describes is somebody that is an unwitting agent and basically advancing the interests of Russia without knowing it. And the way that he, you know, Putin is able to use him, he doesn't even require kind of the compromise, the compromising material that's required typically to coerce behavior by an agent. He doesn't need that because what he has in the president is a fan. You know, for some personal gain, he want, he was he had the Miss Universe competition and he wanted Putin to appear on that for multiple reasons, not the least of which is to poke opposition in the United States with this whole collusion uh, narrative. He, he wants to just be provocative. How would you say the relationships are going with China and Russia? How good a job has he done in managing those relationships? Terribly, and I'll explain. So, and I'll start with most, almost the easier issue of, of China. There's some discussion about whether China is a kind of a revisionist power, meaning that it just wants to kind of work on the margins within the international system, or if it wants to completely kind of upend it and establish a, a different kind of order. Because it's somewhat ambiguous still, and you know, up until relatively recently under uh, President Xi Jinping, there were a lot more areas where we could potentially work together. Trump attempted to engage in a trade war, which he uh, mismanaged to cost the effects for his own key constituencies, agricultural communities, and the broader U.S. consumer. And frankly, in this most recent accommodation where they kind of came up with a you know an agreement of sorts, the president gave a huge amount of ground on the key, most important issues, intellectual property theft. Now the more problematic issue of Russia. Russia has not just uh, doesn't just have the capabilities; it's weaker economically, but it's 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 very capable on the security and defense front. You also have a Russia that's been highly aggressive in challenging U.S. interests. And if in the past the Russians would be concerned about um, backlash, the cost that the U.S. would impose mm -hmm. in response, now the Russians are challenging our forces directly in Syria. They're also supporting, uh, you know, the Iranians. We've gone into a world where the Russians are attacking the U.S. interests directly. And we're getting it to the point where they're going to attack some core interest. And eventually we're going to get to the point where there's going to be an accident miscalculation. And we're going to defend our interests and potentially get into a shooting match. So especially in a Biden administration, for instance, where President Biden will defend our interests, unlike President Trump, we are going to be in a world where the risks are much, much higher. Where? Where? Uh, I think it could be directly uh, with regards to elections. It could be... Um, well, they've done that. Right. But it could be in, in a much more ro robust way, for instance, uh, post-elections kind of in an outcome where, the, where um, President Trump loses coming up with something that could, you know, discredit, uh, let's say, uh, President Vice President Biden's victory. All right. So the worst case scenario, two people show up for work at the White House on January 20th. The court is split. Trump's ignoring it. And then for the first time in history, an American election has to be decided by the military. Talk me through what might happen. Well, I mean, the, the, that is a uh, foundational question is, does the, the U.S. military have a role? The president has successfully, I mean, he has, in fact, successfully co-opted large swaths of DHS, and he has kind of a, his own personal, you know, law enforcement force that he can employ to prevent himself from kind of leaving office. Who has the requisite power force to facilitate his departure? The military might be the only one. Would the military do that? Do you see that 
I think the military is going to do the right thing. And uh, I expect my my military officers and uh, soldiers to abide by the Constitution. They swore an oath not to the President of the United States. They swore an oath to the Constitution of the United States. And I expect them to uphold that oath. All right. The president could marshal the DHS or other federal officers. Are you saying you could see this as a dispute between those two sides? So uh, I'm, I'm, I am uh, worried about it, but I know that the military would do the right thing and not come out on the streets to suppress civilian protesters. I, I know that the military would um, you know, follow the law. That's as much as I could say definitively, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I think this is likely to play out in, in the courts. Okay, now you were apolitical. Were you registered for a party before this? Did you tend to vote? Sure. So because I was apolitical, I know that I registered at the age of 18 for selective service and uh, vote at a, as a New Yorker, as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. You know, that was many, many years ago. And then I also know because of public record disclosures, people were trying to figure out whether I was like a Democratic hack or something like that, that I registered as an independent sometime in 2010, 2012. I could say that I I failed in my duty as an American on multiple occasions and by not voting in previous elections. I've um, shaken off that kind of complacency. So if in the past I, I failed to live up to my obligations as a, as a citizen, I will not do that this time. And I encourage every American to go out and vote. Does that mean you're voting for Joe Biden in November? I'm absolutely going to vote for, um, I, I'm, I'm a never-Trumper. I am going to vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. We have a binary choice. Would you take a post in the Biden administration? Um, I've, I've made a commitment to uh, my studies for two years. Uh, I'm in this uh, in a doctoral program. I find it hard to imagine going into um, a Biden administration. But at the same time, uh, you know, my, my feelings on public service are as strong as ever. And if I feel like there's some way that I could contribute, you know, beyond what I'm doing now, if there's a way for me to continue to serve, I, I, I'd be willing to do that. Have you ever thought about running for office? People have mentioned that to me. I mean, I, I don't think my, you know, my, my wife would not appreciate that. So uh, I think that's the biggest hurdle. Um, but I, no, I'm being a little facetious. I would say that political office is, is, is important. Whether I personally want to expose myself to that, uh, I find that hard to imagine at this point in time. Um, but I very much applaud the people that do step into the fray. So you mentioned your wife several times. How does she feel about this? How do you have young children? How do they feel about this? My daughter has an opinion. She's she's nine and she uh, she liked seeing me on TV. I guess it's the age of like, you know, social media and all, all that. So okay. she liked seeing me on uh, Coat Bearer and uh, Trevor Noah. Spy Baby is like her favorite skit where I, I come here as a three-year-old spy. Right. Uh, so, but you know, she also is starting to recognize, you know, what, what role I played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's important to me. My wife, uh, she feels this very, very poignantly. Um, her husband was under attack. Our family was under attack. And um, she doesn't rationalize the Department of Defense's response to my situation uh, as well as I do. Uh, the Department of Defense actually conducted this investigation in spite of the fact that the Secretary of the Army and Secretary of Defense had said that there would be no kind of neg- negative action taken against me. So you mentioned Icarus which suggests arrogance, that you decided you could do something about this and then got taken down. Do you think you're arrogant? And if you're a martyr, was this the hill to die on? Well, I I definitely don't consider myself a martyr. I consider myself kind of uh, a duty-bound public servant um, officer that did what he felt was right. The president politicized me and, and gave me a voice. And guess what? I'm using my voice. 
I think I see myself as emblematic of a cohort of uh, subject matter experts that know their craft, have been doing their craft for a while, have um, operate within the system to um, help defend U.S. national security interests. Has that group lost its power? The, this group, this cohort of people, as the Republicans like to say, the deep state. Well, it's uh, the deep state, but also the the death of expertise is is kind of another uh, you know term of art. Uh, I don't think so. I think that we have a wonderful cohort of um, public servants whose contribution is valued. Uh, you know, there's some de- definitely a loss of a trust in, in in government right now that has to be rebuilt. So who did you do it for? You, the country, your daughter? What? If you had to pick one. I, I did it for the country. I, I did it. Um, I did it because uh, to me, there was, a, there were, frankly, there was no choice. Um, I saw something wrong. I, I, I suspected it could have amounted to something illegal. And um, as an army officer, I've been, it's been drilled into me for, for decades. If you see something, say something. Uh, but you know, I didn't pass the political loyalty test for this administration and for this president. All right. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I have a confession. Vinman reminds me a little of my dad. First of all, he kind of looks like him, which is just freaky. But also, my dad served. He was a lieutenant commander in the Navy almost until the day he died at age 34. When I was younger, I wanted to enlist. I couldn't, though. Don't ask, because I won't tell. I know it may sound weird coming from someone like me, but not serving in the military... Well, it's been one of my greatest regrets in life. So both those men made me think of honor and duty and sacrifice for country, which Vinman talked about in his testimony and in this interview. They may be just words, but it's nice to hear them, since such things seem so hopelessly lost in this shabby era of compromised ideals. Way is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Adam Teicholz and Paula Schumann. With music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to John Guida, Lariel Higa, and Kathy Tu. So here's the drill, and it's not a military one. Hit subscribe if you're in a podcast app already. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get a new episode delivered to you, if you can handle the truth, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, search for Sway and hit subscribe. Subscribe.